All right, we are in the book of Isaiah. We're in chapter 25. We're looking at verses 1 through 12. So open your Bible there or navigate on your device. Always a good idea to follow along because the Lord wants to speak to you personally from the Word. The topic we're going to find there, God will swallow up death forever and will wipe away tears from all faces. The title of the message, You Take My Death Away. Let's have a prayer. Father, we love you, obviously care for you, Lord, and thank you for all that you've done for us. But we know, Lord, that you loved us more. You loved us first while we were still rebels. You died for us and rose from the dead, Lord, that uh, we might be saved. I pray, Lord, that sometime this morning during the study or today, we would uh, thank you for the joy of your salvation, so rich and so free, and that we would recall, Lord, how you brought us to Christ and when you brought us to Christ and what a wonder it is, Lord, whether we grew up in a Christian home and that was your way of of keeping us for yourself or whether we came to know you later in life, Lord, uh, the miracle of the new birth. We rejoice in it. We thank you for it. And Lord, because we're born again, and if we are, uh, then your Holy Spirit is within us and he's also here in this place to teach us. And so do that this morning through these words of Isaiah. If there are non-believers here, Lord, those that don't know you, I pray that they would hear the still, small voice of your Spirit whispering to them that all they need to do is believe and they will be saved. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Fashion giant List has a line of coffin couture for burial that they call the Six Feet Under Collection. Before you rush to get your outfit, however, consider going green. Irish designer Francesca Rea has created a series of eco-friendly burial garments. After speaking with someone who had recently attended a funeral where a wicker basket was used instead of a coffin for environmental health, uh, Rea started to consider the ecological impact of funerals. She wanted to create garments which were actively beneficial for the environment. The natural fibers of the designs will decompose and add to the ground where the deceased is buried, Rhea says, and plants can grow from this which continues the cycle of life. If you're really into the cycle of life, you can have your dead body turned into soil, also known as natural organic reduction. Your body decomposes over several weeks after being shut in a container. You know, sometimes you say, oh, so-and-so, I didn't know they died. Were they buried or cremated? Well, no, they were part of the natural organic reduction movement. All right. No takers there. If you've purchased a casket, a wicker basket sounds really good. Uh, If you want to stick with the traditional casket, two big retailers can help keep the price down. You can get a casket for under $1,200 at Walmart. This is true. Shipping is free, but it doesn't include setup. First service didn't get that, I just... (laughs) Costco sells coffins. Be aware, however, that they will not honor their usual policy of returning any item for any reason. I need to have my brother exhumed why I need another coffin, but anyway. In verse 7 of Isaiah 25, the prophet said that God will destroy the covering cast over people and the veil that is spread over all nations. The covering is a burial shroud, sometimes called grave clothes. The veil is the face covering placed on the deceased. Isaiah then says something full of wonder. He will swallow up death forever, verse 8. We ought to have an amazed reaction to the swallowing up 
of death. If you've ever been to a funeral, graveside service, uh, known somebody who has died, of course, you know, that, that's everybody, to, to hear that death is one day going to be swallowed up and non-existent is fantastic. The Apostle Paul was amazed, and he borrowed from Isaiah 25 when he shouted, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Paul also pointed out that, and I quote, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, as excited as we are about all of this, we realize that death won't go down without a fight. It's going to make stands in the time of Jacob's trouble and in the millennial kingdom. Death wants to take as many as it can to the second death. The second death describes the sorry plight of all those who die without trusting Jesus for salvation. They're going to be resurrected only to be judged by their own works. If you're not a believer, your works will be found inadequate to get into heaven because the only work that is adequate is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you rejected that, and then you will be sent to hell, which the lake of fire which was created for the devil and his angels. That is the second death. It is conscious, eternal suffering for the non-believer. Our mission as believers, should we decide to accept it, is to live in the power of the resurrection and give everyone an answer for the hope of new life that we have in Jesus. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, death mounts an offensive in the time of Jacob's trouble. Number two, death makes a last stand in the time of David's kingdom. Let's take a look at the first five verses uh, that center around the tribulation. First, the historic context, because we can learn something from that by itself. God's chosen nation had split apart in a civil war between the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. The northern tribes were called Israel. The southern tribes were called Judah. The Assyrians would utterly destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were intent upon doing the same to Judah. Isaiah saw beyond Assyria, who would not overrun Judah, to an invasion by the Babylonians, who would overrun Judah. And then he saw in his own country that Judah were idolaters who refused to repent no matter what was going on. You might say it was the worst of times. It was the worstest of times. I mean, it was just bad all the way around, spiritually uh, and all. In the midst of that kind of personal and political turmoil, God's message to his people was to teach them Bible prophecy. Now, this is, it's kind of remarkable when you think about it. A lot of times people come and they say, well, I just, I'm not hearing what I need to hear at church. Well, if everybody's kind of functioning as well as they can, seeking the Lord, serving the Lord, maybe you are hearing exactly what you need to hear at church. Trust the Lord to to know what he's doing. And so I even think about that. As much as I like prophecy and we talk about prophecy, sometimes we think of it as, you know, just a doctrine or an eschatology. And God says, no, this is what you need to hear in a time of personal and political torment and, and turmoil. You need to remember Bible prophecy. For one thing, it can be a good reset. We tend to get drawn into the world's suggested solutions for personal and political problems. Without realizing it, we can get off of our Christian mission, or I should say the Great Commission, which is first to concentrate on making disciples of all men. You realize, of course, that the world's problems would be solved largely if there were more disciples, if there were more Christians 
that had common sense. Uh, this would be a plus. Uh, there are lots of references in God's word to the fact that prophecy or the doctrine of the last things provides incredible comfort to the Christian. And so if you want to comfort somebody, you comfort them by talking about what the Lord is doing in the future, where we will be in the future. Hey, standing at a grave, what could be more comforting than to know that your loved one was a believer in Jesus Christ, that they are alive in the presence of Jesus, and that you will be reunited with them? Is there anything else that would compare to that in terms of comfort? No, not at all. And so comfort yourself with prophecy. Verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Isaiah knew the Lord. He had a relationship with the living God. Do you? If you do, how's it going? It's a, it's a chance to, to just really spend time with the Lord and figure it out. I exalt you. I will praise your name. In the worstest of times, Isaiah could rest in the Lord, so so can we. It was a wonderful thing that the Lord had, uh, was counted upon to be faithful and true to his counsels of old. Now, those counsels took place between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before creation. And a huge component of those counsels was the plan of salvation should mankind fail in the Garden of Eden. And so Isaiah looked at that and he says, God's plans would not fail. And so he decided he'd be a worshiper rather than a worrier. Man's plans can fail. Uh, politics fails us, right? Almost every time. And, uh, you know, every ism, uh, you know, of philosophy and religion fails us. Uh, but you never have to wonder if what God has said he was going to do or has done is going to fail. He is faithful and true to his word. And, and so we can endure these things. That's what we can be like a Habakkuk. When Babylon did invade and they wiped out Judah, he said, well, there's no cattle. There's no, there's no way of making a living. Everything's wiped out. I'm going to praise the Lord because I know he is faithful and true and he will bring Israel back. He will do what he said he is going to do. And he'll do that for you and I as well. Verse 2 says, you have made the city a ruin. A fortified city is a ruin. A palace of foreigners to be a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. You wonder if Isaiah received an advanced copy of chapter 17 and 18 of the Revelation. The city God will destroy that will never be rebuilt is future Babylon. It will be the headquarters, ground zero, the home office, the place of foreigners for the global government and commerce of the Antichrist. The Tower of Babel, its beginnings, marked a significant rebellion of mankind against God. Since then, there has been a struggle between the two most mentioned cities in the Bible, Jerusalem and Babylon. When God confounded human language, he created nations and he scattered them all over the globe. And then he birthed a brand new nation through Abram, who would have his name changed later to Abraham, the history of the world can only be comprehended if we keep Israel as its focus. It is the most important nation. It is the apple of God's eye. It was through Israel that the world would receive the Savior, Jesus Christ. The Revelation predicts Babylon the Great is fallen. Is fallen. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Therefore, her plagues will come on her in one day, 
death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Babylon will be destroyed. As Cletus Cassidy once said, there will be carnage. Verse 3, therefore the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. Now we immediately read that as you got to be strong. Well, we put the emphasis on our own developing strength so that God can use us. But in the next verse, we see that our strength comes from God. Those who glorify him are the strong. Here's the difference. Uh, Maybe this will help. Recently, I heard some dialogue in a Christian film in which one of the characters said to another, go and build something great for God. Francis Schaeffer said, we're not building God's kingdom. He's building his kingdom. And we are praying for the privilege of being involved. And so that's the difference. Some people think, well, that's a slight difference. That's a subtle difference, but it's really not. As human beings, we tend to put the... the, um, burden on ourselves. We read something in God's word and says, now I have to achieve that. I have to get up to that point. There's always a debate ever since I've been a Christian between what they call lordship salvation and I guess any other type of salvation. Uh, Lordship salvation is that uh, it's kind of a neat little limerick thing that they have. If Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Wow, that's deep. And I'll tell you right now, I'll say it just for me, The Lord is never going to be the Lord of all my life until I am with him out of this body of flesh. And so I don't know how much, how far does he, you know, uh, am I I good enough to to be used of the Lord? Is enough of me the Lord of all or, or, you know, or what? You see what I mean? It's insurmountable. And, And it doesn't need to be that. The emphasis is not on you. It's on the Lord. It's what he's done for you, what he can do through you. It's your submission to him. You're yielding to him. It's your giving him the glory. He's not looking for the most disciplined person here today. I am living proof of that. Uh, And in the Bible, you can prove that over and over again. The Bible is filled with knuckleheads whom God said, that's, that's the guy right there. No, 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 no. How many of them said, not me? Uh, you know, Jeremiah, no, you got the wrong guy. Jonah, what an extreme case of you got the wrong guy-itis, right? And, and so, you know, that's the thing. I'm not building anything for God. God is building something, and I have the privilege through prayer of maybe being a small part of it. Sure, you cooperate with God, the Holy Spirit, to grow and mature. That's called sanctification. But too much emphasis can be put on you and not enough on the Lord. And that's why the Apostle Paul exhorted the Galatian believers when he said, you began in the Spirit, you're not going to continue in the flesh and be made perfect. Continue in the Spirit. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the Christian life starts with grace, it continues with grace, it ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace, By the grace of God, I am what I am, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Verse 4, for you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Now remember, we're looking at believers in the time of Jacob's trouble. They'll be poor, needy, in distress, refugees. The terrible ones in the last years of the tribulation are the Satan-empowered Antichrist, his false prophet, the somehow alive image of the beast, and all those who receive the mark of the beast 
who go about persecuting all those who don't. It'll be like a Category 5 hurricane pounding on your wall. Verse 5, you will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. Now, this is a promise of limited divine protection during the tribulation. The efforts of aliens, meaning foreigners, to persecute the Jews will be reduced, but not totally eliminated. We know that in the future time of Jacob's trouble, two-thirds of Jews on earth will be killed during that time. One-third will remain at the end. You have heat in the shadow of a cloud. That's still heat. It's a little bit cooler. You know, when you're in a really, really, really hot place, you're, you know, water skiing at the Colorado River. And it's, uh, I did that once. Uh, I have pictures. But anyway, <laughs> if, uh, you know, it's, it's super hot. You're, you're camped out on a sand beach, and, I mean, you just want to die uh, and stuff. And then you find a tree, and it's like three degrees cooler, and it feels like winter, you know, and stuff. But, and so, but, you know, but there's still heat. There's still heat when there's shade. Uh, and we're going to see a lot of Gentiles uh, dead in the Great Tribulation. The victory song of terrible ones, their persecutors, won't be as boisterous as it could be, but they're still going to sing off and on. Uh, two witnesses in the Great Tribulation, they witness for three and a half years, they're indestructible, they call down fire from heaven and things like that. Then God allows the Antichrist to kill them, and the entire world throws a celebration. It's like the Super Bowl of, of you know, murder. Uh, you know, they've killed the two witnesses. They're exchanging gifts. Hey, you know, what are you going to get on, you know, kill the prophet's days, you know, and stuff. And it's, it's a celebration. I'm sure there's a lot of songs involved. You know, we are the world. We are the killers, you know, that, something like that. And, and then all of a sudden, these two guys rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. But it's, still, there's, there's some bad things that are going to happen during that time. And they're going to be diminished, not completely diminished. Uh, done away with. Today, prior to the time of Jacob's trouble, you will have tribulation, but we say it's with a little t. It's trouble, not uh, the great tribulation. And so you're going to suffer within the limitations and restrictions God places on you, like he did with his servant Job. In 40 years, I've officiated several hundred memorial services and graveside services. Too many are confirmed believers. Too many are those you don't really know about their salvation. Many are believers. And I say they are, not they were, because they are alive. And they're going to rise from the dead, receive glorified bodies, whether they're the wicked dead or the righteous dead. Believers will be raised to eternal life. Unbelievers are raised to experience the second death we spoke of for all eternity. If death can get unbelievers into the great tribulation, they're at a serious disadvantage. And so maybe you're an unbeliever here and you think, well, sounds like I have time to make some decisions. I'm not sure if any of this stuff is really true, but man, if I see an AI-inspired antichrist beast thing, then I'll know, you know, and I'll come to know the Lord. But uh, for one thing, the Bible says that period of time is characterized by a strong delusion. And you may or may not be able to really break through that. And if you receive the Lord, you're going to be persecuted and martyred, not to forget the cosmic geographical disasters that will kill millions upon millions of people. And so now is the time to come to Jesus, not later. Secondly, verses 6 through 12, death makes a last stand. The clouds of the great tribulation will roll away 
and the sun of righteousness will be shining. The millennial kingdom is as close to utopia as any time in history since the Garden of Eden before the fall. You might ask, what is the millennium? Well, Jesus is going to return at the end of the time of Jacob's trouble. That's called the second coming. He'll establish the kingdom promised to David and Israel. We're told that it lasts for a thousand years. Millennium is 1,000 years in Latin, hence the millennial kingdom. So we're in the church age. If you want to do a timeline, you have, did you ever do timelines in school? We're in the church age. Rapture is going to take place. Rapture and resurrection. That starts the seven-year great tribulation. Jesus comes back, second coming, and then he establishes the thousand-year kingdom. At the end of the thousand years, second death, new heavens, new earth, eternity. So that's a kind of a, that's how I do timelines, back and forth. Because time is actually a thread. It's not a lot, anyway, whatever. I like, do you ever get somebody, like Bible teachers, talk about their theories of time, and it's like, please move on, because this is so stupid, and it's so speculative, and, you know, they always say, well, God's outside of time. I don't know what that means. Is it like he's outside this building? I mean, you know, what do you mean outside? I, true, God is not bound by time, I guess we'd have to say he's eternal, but what does that even mean? So anyway, back into the study. My cognitive test is coming back soon, so we'll know. <laughs> I noticed there's a bunch of sandbags here on the stage, too, this morning. So. And a cat. And there was a cat also. So anyway, I don't know what I'm doing now. Death is alive in the millennium. For example, Satan is incarcerated for a thousand years in a place called the abyss. He's released from that incarceration at the end of the thousand years, and he leads a rebellion against Jesus Christ that has so many people, it's like the sand of the sea, it says. And yet Jesus puts down that rebellion, fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them, and so they die. That's in the millennium. There's going to be mega death at the end of the millennium. And in this mountain, verse 6, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. The mountain is the city of Jerusalem, situated 2,500 feet in elevation on Mount Zion. This is not a specific banquet, but a kind of a banquet that's going on all the time. You know, it's, it's, it's like a city that never sleeps thing where there's always this food available because people from all over the globe and every nation of the globe are going to come and pay tribute to Jesus Christ. And they're going to have a, it, it, it's a spiritual banquet that is illustrated by this physical feast. Uh, I like where it talks about the fat things and the fatness and all. Uh, Psalm 36 8 uh, says, they shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. I don't know if you've been to the doctor recently, but under the latest guidelines, everybody is obese. Uh, my doctor says, because, you know, they're trying to figure out if you're heart attack and cholesterol and statin drugs and all that stuff. And so they have this chart. I'm supposed to be 165 pounds. Uh, I just started laughing. I said, that's never going to happen. Hey, a few years ago, and I got, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit heavy now. I, I chalk it up to a disease. I've got an excuse. It has nothing to do with my overeating at all. But a few years ago, I got healthy before I got sick, and I was down, I could, you know, if I could get down around 180, that was a lot. And I didn't want to weigh any less than 180 because I was afraid I'd blow away. Or I'd have to get a whole new wardrobe or my clothes would be, you know, so I, 25 pounds below one, that's insanity. 
I'd have to starve myself. I don't think I could even do it starving, tell you the truth. I'd have to have a, a, a disease or swallow a worm or something. But anyway, but, uh, and it used to be, now you're obese, and it says obesity, it, just, it should just say fat, right? We, used to, we can't do that anymore. You, hey, you're fat. Your doctor used to, you're fat, right? And now they say you're obese. But I like this fatness idea uh, because fatness is good. It's good to have fatness. And so I want to incorporate that into our Christian language. I've been trying this out with my wife. Uh, she'll say, honey, how do I look? And I'll say, I've never seen you so fatness before. <laughs> it's not going very well, but I, I, I still think there's hope. Verse 7, and he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. The shroud and the veil symbolize death. They're cast over all people and spread over all nations. Where did death come from? Who brought it to life, as it were? God created our original parents with free will, gave them one simple command of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you shall eat of it and surely die. Now they did eat, and we believe they died in three ways. They immediately died spiritually in the sense that they lost fellowship with God. You remember they hid from God. They began dying physically as creation came under a curse. And they would die eternally separated from God in their sin unless God intervened. God did intervene in a big way. Immediately after their sin, he provided a way for them to approach him, to know him. It involved the sacrificial death of an innocent substitute, an animal. That system of animal sacrifice would continue until God the Son would come as a man to be the once-for-all innocent substitute for the sins of the world. In his incarnation, Jesus would die to take away the sins of the world. And so that's the plan, right? That's God's plan. And as we look at history from the Garden of Eden forward, from the creation of man forward, God is, you have to conclude that this plan cannot happen any faster than it's happening. I mean, we look at this and say, man, can't you do something now? Look at all the suffering, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not God, but I can trust in the Lord because he's faithful and true not a day more is going to go by than the days that need to take place in order to bring a Savior into the world and to get all this stuff going. It's the exact right time. In fact, the Bible says Jesus came at exactly the right moment. We wouldn't have chosen that. I would say, how about two minutes after sin in the garden, you know? How about we just get this over with? But God has this fantastic plan of redemption and restoration, and we're a part of it. And, and it, it's unfolding exactly as it ought to. Uh, in verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. The rebuke of his people certainly describes Jews. Hated, harassed, hassled, harangued, hunted, harmed like no other people in history. The millennial kingdom ends all of that as Israel takes her rightful place as the number one nation in the world. God's, uh, you know, uh, capital is not going to be in Moscow or Beijing or Washington, D.C. It's going to be in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And if any of those nations and ourselves exist in that time, we will travel there to worship the Lord. Verse 9, 
It will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Isaiah waited for their Lord through the centuries. Sadly, they missed him when he came. They were waiting and looking for a particular type of Messiah. They still are. And when Jesus came and fulfilled all of the promises of the Messiah and all of the Old Testament prophets and all of that, they rejected him because they had hard hearts. And so what a, what a sad thing. It's like that joke, you know, the guy's on the roof of his house in a flood, you know, and they send a rowboat and he sends a helicopter and he keeps, tells them, you know, hey, the, Lord, the Lord's going to save me. And then he drowns. And then he, in heaven, he says, why didn't you save me, Lord? And the Lord says, I sent you a boat and I sent you a helicopter. And so the idea, you know, the, the Jews had their Messiah. He was on the earth. He was healing everybody and, and preaching the gospel. And, you know, everything was clicking. And they say, yeah, we don't think so. We want you to die. We have a different idea of what we want to happen. So they waited and they missed their opportunity. But the Lord, and this is the purpose of the great tribulation. This is why we like to call it by Jeremiah's title, the, uh, the, day of, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, because God is going to get us out of the earth and deal with the Jews again. And at the end of the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, all Israel will be saved. Much of their waiting was on account of their own rebellion. Stephen, the first martyr of the church age, uh, after he gave a history lesson in Acts chapter 7, then he rebuked the Jews and saying, you know, you've stiff-necked, uncircumcised of heart, which of the prophets haven't you killed? And now you've murdered the Savior. Verse 10, for on this mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest and Moab shall be trampled down under him as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap or really the cesspool is what it is. Why single out Moab? Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, Isaiah centered his attention on Moab because with her perpetual animosity toward Israel, Moab could be used as a representative of all of Israel's enemies. So while Yahweh's hand will be upon Mount Zion for protection, it will be on Moab and Israel's other enemies for destruction. As a result, Moab will be trampled and become like a watery cesspool. Verse 11, he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim, and he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. And so here Moab is depicted as a man trying to swim through a cesspool. Uh, pool, rather. Uh, one of the Bible paraphrases puts it this way, thrash away as they will, like swimmers trying to stay afloat, they'll sink in the sewage. Their pride will put them under. This is all starting to affect my lunch plans. Uh, so just keep that in mind as you're having lunch today, Moabites trying to swim in sewage. Got that? That'll give you, get you down to 165. Uh, <laughs> verse 12, the fortress of the high fort of your walls, he will bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground to the dust. Another prophet, Zephaniah, wrote, Surely Moab shall be like Sodom, and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun, uh, overrun rather with weeds and salt pits, and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. I don't want to take anything away from the, the wonder and the joy of that millennial kingdom. I mean, it's going to be fantastic. But a lot of things will be going on besides kids safely playing with ferocious animals. There will be death in the millennium. The first inhabitants of it will be mortal believers who survive the tribulation, but they have children and they will need to be born again because they are born with a sin nature and they will sin. And, uh, and 
you know, that will have to be dealt with. And you see at the end, multitudes of unbelievers, even though Jesus is on the earth ruling from Jerusalem, they will uh, follow Satan and die. Death will, however, in the end, be cast into the lake of fire. It will make its last stand, and then it will be done. I expect us to be raptured. As I patiently wait, I will be officiating more memorials and graveside services if the Lord doesn't come. Or you're going to attend mine, and I have some ideas for that. We die even though death is defeated. The Apostle Paul alluded to Isaiah when he said, The bodies we now have are weak and can die, but they will be changed into bodies that are eternal. Then the scripture will come true, death has lost the battle. Charles Spurgeon said, Never fear dying, beloved. Dying is the last but the least matter that a Christian has to be anxious about. Fear living. That is a hard battle to fight, a stern discipline to endure, a rough voyage to undergo. We would qualify what Spurgeon said by pointing out that those particular words apply to believers because unbeliever, you need to be gripped with the fear of God who can send your soul to hell. What should you do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ.